Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we continue and now wrap up our series in this first of the pastoral epistles, uh, we'll look together this morning at the whole of the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is God's inspired and an errant word. Uh, let me say also that at this time parents are invited to dismiss their children, ages 4 to 6, for children's worship training. And if they're all good, they return at noon. No rupture in the space-time continuum. Assumed. First Timothy chapter 6. This is God's Word. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness with godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who is his testimony, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, 
Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irrelevant babbling contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we ask now that you would open your word to us. We pray that you'd pour out the Holy Spirit in power of illumination, that he might take this word and apply it to our minds and hearts. Help us to see, to hear, to think, to feel, and to live. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me test your musical knowledge and also prove that I'm cool. See if you've heard this before. I've got the power. Do you know, I've Got the Power was a hit by the group Snap in the 1990s. It was a rap group set up by a German musical company. Now, of course, being from the continent and having rap was a little bit ironic, and so it went right to the top of the charts in Europe. In America, it really did better than that. It, It was a hit, but the really important thing about it is, is it became one of the most used phrases and pieces of song in television commercials. And you can't buy a battery today from Everetti or, or Duracell or whoever without having that little jingle come in your head. I got the power, I got the power. The power, as it was known, was a very elusive kind of song. It communicated a feeling and an attitude about technological and political and social and musical power. But there was a lot of chaos in the song. You know, the opening words are in Russian. That's a little hard for most of us to understand. Uh, in the video version that was, a, that was popular all over the world, actually nobody is singing. It's all lip syncing. Kind of strange for a music video. And most of the people who performed this song and helped develop it, they never got paid. Only one gal got a cent out of the whole deal, and that's because she was like related to lots of music industry people, and she threatened to sue. It communicates a feeling or an attitude, but you know the key phrase, I've got the power, that was stolen from James Brown, the godfather of soul. Did you know my wife and James Brown came from the same hometown? I don't know what that means, but I suspect it's profoundly important. But of course, James Brown, being James Brown, he was talking about, I've got the power of love. What else would James Brown talk about? And you know, none of those things really will save us. Technology is great. I enjoyed coming this morning to church riding in my automobile rather than having to walk or ride on a horse. Horses are nice. Cars are faster. And they don't smell as much. Politics, you know, that's an area that can be of help. But you know, um, just now it's almost a total embarrassment, isn't it, to try to figure out how to vote for and what to think of political scenes here and around the world. Social power. We have seen social power exercised in our day, both large social power with social media and the overthrowing of countries and regimes and small social power, micro social power. But you know there's a limit to how much of this kind of stuff you can take. I, I've kind of quit Facebook out of sheer emotional exhaustion. 
I am not interested in what your spaghetti looks like each and every day on the plate. And music, as great as music is, you know, it can make you tap your toe, it can stir the soul, but music cannot necessarily fix the root of your problem. Even love. Especially the kind of love James Brown was talking about, and I suspect the song really overall is, you know, that can leave you, ironically, unfulfilled and very much alone. Our problem, you see, is that by nature, we don't got to power. And so we are left with a problem. Who will save me from this life of misery and death? That's the real issue before us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here the apostle thunders an answer by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, though a sinner by nature, your life can be changed through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and His grace. Your life can be changed by His power. Now, of course, chapter 6 follows right on the heels of chapter 5. And there's a whole background to what he's saying that we must remember. You see the Apostle Paul in in the opening verse addresses a new category of persons in the church. But of course, we must remember those that he's already addressed in the previous chapter. He's talked about the role of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in the family and in the church of his own day. And then he went on to address those who are widows. And those who are widows indeed, who have no one to care for them, but yet are pious and love the Lord. He then shifts to talking about elders in the church, and he particularly highlights those that we might call elders indeed, that is, who are worthy of a double honor. And Paul here shifts again, and he addresses the most lowly in the home, and what on a social scale might be the temptation to consider the most lowly in the church. He says in verse 1, "...let all who are under a yoke as bondservants..." Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul addresses bondservants, those bound through the servitude of the day to serve their masters. Now, this is an American audience, so let me tell you, don't let your mind run in the direction of gone with the wind. Don't think about the scourge of southern chattel slavery. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's addressing a situation that was common due to an institution in Roman times that was different than that. Now, in some ways, it was better. As in all things in a fallen world, in other ways, it was worse. But you get the picture. They were in chains. They were bound. They were not free. If you get fancy with some, they will try to explain this condition in some sort of moral and theological category to justify it. Usually it's called the obligation to labor without the benefit of a contract. And it's true. That kind of a a relationship is most unjust indeed. This condition was not necessarily the result of any personal fault of any person Paul is here addressing. But it was a burden 
It was a restriction. It was a holding back. It was a form of suffering that certain believers experienced in the providence of God. And on many levels, it illustrated something about each and every one of us in this room. You see, we are all slaves. Our first father was not. He was free at first. But by choosing evil, our first father Adam did himself and did all of us no favors whatsoever. He rebelled against the holy will of God. He believed the lies of Satan and he followed that lie rather than the truth. And the rest is history. And that leaves all of us in a condition by nature descended from him. You and I are slaves. Yes, some through the years have been seen to be slaves. That is, you could look at them and you would know that they're slaves because they're invisible bonds. Or they suffer that inward reality that is so clear that it's even manifested on their face and in their life. We would say that they have a bondage of soul. But that's true of each and every one of us by nature. No matter how well-dressed you are today, no matter how long you spent combing your hair, you are a slave to sin by nature. And therefore, by by nature, you have nothing. No love of God by nature. No righteousness by nature. No good standing by nature. All the good things in your life are but a gift in spite of yourself. And as you handle them and use them, as as you go through your daily living, by nature, it all turns to dust. And it's worse than that. Paul's description steps down a notch when he says in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul digresses and speaks of the darkness of mind and heart that accompanies one who is in a broken and enslaved position. What's ironic about Verses 3 to 5 is that he's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about people inside the church. You see, bad doctrine and an arrogant heart go together. And that combination has a familiar fragrance, does it not? It's the common smell of Satan that fooled our first mother. We don't feel right by nature. We don't think right by nature. We don't speak right by nature. Our personal relationships by nature are prone to be an unmitigated disaster, always in a dynamic that doesn't bring glory to God. And that's just to speak about matters inside the church. Lift up your head, look out the door. Glance down the street. See into the lives of your friends and neighbors and colleagues and cohorts. Things are worse out there in many ways. And so it is no wonder the Apostle Paul broadly 
brushes us all and says that by nature we are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. To be blunt and a little southern, we're a sorry lot by nature. And Paul goes one step further to speak in very practical terms. These are frankly offensive terms to us. He says in verses 7 to 11 that all are corrupted by the love of money by nature. He crescendos after talking about it being a snare and leading us to senseless and harmful desires and strife. And he says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying that by nature, even the good things that God gives us turn to dust when we touch them with our fingers. His blessings, practical, tangible, financial, transactionable, in our hands they become corrupted. You see, idolatry sets in. And we get everything backwards. We begin to worship the resource and the attaining of it rather than the one who provides it and in whom there is never any lack. Oh, by nature, the love of money, Paul says, plunges us into ruin and destruction. And so even the most precious potential of human labor and capital sours in us by nature and becomes a fount not of every blessing as it should be, but it becomes a fount of all all sorts of evil. I remember one family years ago, a family where there was financial strife between the husband and wife. They hated each other. And so, as one sought to get back at the other, for every dollar he would spend, she would spend two. And every two that she spent, he would spend four. And if one went off to some city in state, the other would go off to a city out of state. And and if one bought a car, another one would buy a house. On and on it went until chaos flowed from an inordinate love. Not a love of God, but a love of self and a love of money. Oh, by nature, that is what we all are really like down underneath. But the good news of the gospel is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the good news of the gospel is that your sinful nature doesn't have the last word necessarily. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is mighty and able to change everything for you. And Paul trumpets that loud and clear. He begins mentioning him by name in chapter 6 and verse 14. He speaks of the peering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of verse 15 he says, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Here Paul, in very theological and and Old Testament kind of language, is speaking about Jesus as 
the very Son of God and the very Son of Man. He is human, but He is so much more than merely human. He is Lord. He is God. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the promised divine Savior who would come and save us from our sins. He's adored by angels. They circle His throne. They compete with each other, crying out about how glorious and wonderful He is. And so as we hear the Apostle Paul there in chapter 6, we begin to hear the outline of the answer to our deepest question. Who's got the power? Only Jesus does. All glory, all honor, all power are His. All dominion from before time and during time and after time. He has all of these at His disposal. And mighty and able, He is mighty and able to change. To change you, to change everything in you, to change everything about you. Not just to turn over a new leaf for a few days and kind of give you a breather. He can fundamentally alter your state of being. He can take you from death to life. And He can give you the faith and the repentance in which so to do. The Lord Jesus gives grace to sinners like you and me. Verse 12 makes that very clear. Take Hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here Paul's not just speaking to Timothy, although the sentence is directed pointedly at him. But you have to remember in this book, it shifts from singular to plural. The entire congregation was reading over his shoulder. There's no doubt that it was read in the presence of many witnesses there in Ephesus. And so they all learned... They all learned that the apostle wanted them to never, never, never forget that Jesus has the power. He wanted them to always remember to look to Him for saving faith, to look for Him for power in life over and over and over again. What is the Christian life? But a looking to Jesus, a looking to Him By grace alone, every day of your life, there is no one else to help you. There is no one else to see. And the Lord Jesus brings real grace into your life. The apostle, perhaps even raising one hand while he writes with the other, says, grace be with you to his young Timothy, serving him in Ephesus. Oh, it's not just that Jesus provides some good nudges. It's not just that He's encouraging along the way. You know, there's this great misconception going around modern American evangelicalism. I hate to break it to you, but but Jesus is not your greatest cheerleader. He doesn't just travel the road of life kind of clapping as you walk along and smiling and urging you. No. Here Paul speaks bluntly. Take hold of the eternal life, he says. Grab hold of the faith-filled Christian life that Jesus has purchased for you. He's not telling us to follow that old false adage of let go and let God. You know, that's very popular in evangelical circles. Just, Just let go and let God. Sit back, be passive. He'll take care of it. Just just turn loose. Let go. Let Him. 
Let him handle everything. You know, to be blunt, that has more in common with Cheech and Chong than it does with the Old and New Testament. Grab hold of the Christian life, Paul says to Timothy. Paul's telling us to get our hands out of our pockets. He's telling us to cooperate with the work of God. You know, the two great errors or the idea that we let go and let God and we do nothing. Or the idea that, that, well, God came and he's left and now it's up to us and we must do it and we can earn our way and let me show you the works you need to do to live the Christian life. And both of those extremes are false. There's a, there's a righteous way in the middle where we work out our salvation. We work because God is working. God works and therefore we cooperate. We get on with Christian living. Living daily in activity, in the power of His grace. Your Christian life, believer, is synergistic. It involves a left hand and a right hand. A left foot and a right foot. God works and only because He most fundamentally works, you you can work too and bring Him glory. Even a little, still sinful, fallen creature like you, just just about that size, you, in a big world, you can give glory to God by what you do and think and say. He has the power to transform all of your living in that way. And so Paul tells us that by His grace, you have abundance. Now, unless you think that I've moved to the, kind of mentally and spiritually moved to the center of town and changed my hairdo and I'm on TV now, let me just clarify this. By His grace, you do have abundance. And Paul gives three very practical examples of that. At the beginning of the chapter, he's addressing bondservants, slaves. And he tells them the most radical truth in the universe. He says, your oppression that you suffer each and every day can have eternal value because of the grace of God. Life is hard. And maybe your life is particularly hard right now. But if you will allow me, let me just recalibrate you and say, you know, you don't have it nearly as hard as brothers and sisters in the faith back in the first century who were slaves. Believing slaves in the first century, they had a very hard lot. And what were they to do in this circumstance? Paul says under inspiration that they were to serve God in the midst of their oppression. That by faithfully serving their masters, they could even more faithfully serve God himself. In other words, he was telling them that their slavery was bigger than themselves. It made an eternal difference in the world. It adorned their Christian profession and the whole Christian faith not with some sort of artificial eye service where you look like you're doing your job, but rather true heart service. From the inside out, you seek to glorify God most fundamentally. Now, don't mistake it. 
Let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That was not an easy commandment. It wasn't fun. It didn't mean that in the moment at which they first began to do that, that their, that their master's hearts changed and everything was well with their souls and, and they were released from bondage and they, they went on to great triumphal heights. That might not have even happened on the second day in which they continued to serve in that wholehearted way. Perhaps their whole life was spent in bearing that witness and from a human perspective, nothing was seen to come of it. But it did mean that their daily bondage and oppression was given divine meaning and divine work and the angels saw and knew and believers saw and knew and there was eternal worth and benefit even by their sacrifice and suffering and oppression. And that value was all the more precious, we're told in verse 2, if they were serving in a believing home. Now, I know you have a flood of questions, and we're running out of time. I can't answer them all. You, you doubtless have the question, well, now, what about freedom? You know, I'm really big on freedom. Do you remember the scene in the Braveheart movie where the guy, you know, with half his face painted blue and everything, he screams out, freedom? That's me. Wasn't slavery wrong? I want to hear a direct declaration from the pulpit. Well, let me be clear. I'm I'm not making this up. I'm just telling you what Paul is saying here. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit and And his text is very clear. Paul is not addressing those questions here. What Paul is doing here is something, to be blunt, much more important. Pastoral care is what he's doing. He's giving fine, dear, sweet believers in the first century the kind of hope and joy, real hope and real joy in their difficult circumstances, in their bondage that they so desperately need in their Christian lives. But make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul was no dummy. He was not an idiot. He planted the seeds of slavery's destruction elsewhere in his work with devastating historical consequences. If you have any doubt about that, this afternoon, just open up the New Testament. Look up the little book of Philemon. Read it out loud. Maybe looking in the mirror while you do. Read it out loud. And there trace how the Apostle Paul handles that institution and subverts it to gospel good ends, which would undo it most fundamentally in the long term. Remember that little principle I mentioned earlier, the the obligation to labor without the benefit of the contract? You know, that sounds so nice, it slides off the tongue, but you know, that's a heap of moral and ethical rubbish. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ before his incarnation, in the great covenant of redemption of old, as he and the Father and the Spirit were of one mind and heart about coming for salvation to save a people for themselves. There's no hint of such an immoral principle. Of course the Son in doing his good work, he receives the rightful, moral, just reward of all his good labors. He inherits a people. 
the bride of Christ indeed will be his, and it would otherwise be unjust. Think about the implications of that for those made in his image. But remember this. In this fallen world, believers find real value even in oppression by his grace. And Paul goes on and speaks of two other very practical circumstances where this power of Jesus makes a difference in daily Christian living. He doesn't just address those who are at the lowly end of the scale. He he addresses the entire church when he talks about believers finding godliness in the context of controversy in the congregation. Verse 3, you remember it? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then he keeps on going, and it's even worse after that. What could be worse, Paul says, than the gangrene of false teaching in the church? He traces its devastation through the life of a congregation. And he's warning the church in Ephesus not to get caught up in such. Contradict Jesus and his apostles, and godliness is your fail. And you strut around like a peacock, and God is utterly not impressed. It leads to conflict and to battle to quarrels and slander and suspicion, and such tragic irony. Because Jesus said what? You will know that they are Christians by their love. You see, there apparently were some guys in Ephesus that had another idea about it. And it caused all end of trouble. But believers who trust in Jesus in spite of Satan's stirring up evil. They find godliness in the midst of chaos because of the grace of God. Godliness with contentment, even in a context of quarrel and difficulty. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit applied to their lives by His power, the power of Jesus. And then in verses 11 and 12, we hear even more. That it's not just that believers can be content and they can survive in that kind of context, but they can grow and they can flourish and they can be more and more like Jesus each day. Verse 11 tells us, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight, he says. Paul tells Timothy to stand his ground and fight against evil. He's the pastor of the church. He's an elder on the session. Of course he's supposed to resist such nonsense. But Paul also tells him to run. Not to run away, but to run to Christ-likeness and the good blessings that Jesus brings by his power and grace even in the midst of struggle. He tells Paul to run. To run like the wind. To run and grab and embrace 
righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. He wants him to run on a daily basis, moment by moment, to run after Christ's likeness. Be like Jesus, Paul tells Timothy, and you and me. And that only happens by his grace. You know, this is a sermon, so now's the time for true confessions. This is going to come as a great shock to you, but you know, I'm really not very good at rap. I can't understand half of the words, and usually I get the impression that's probably good. My wife recalibrates me occasionally and says, Honey, I love you, but you're really not cool. I had to look up most of the facts about SNAP on Google. You, you wouldn't have gotten an introduction to the sermon without Google. But this much I do know, even in my lowly condition. SNAP put their finger on something. They had their finger on a pulse that is really important for you to know and understand. You need to ask the question, who's got the power? Because you need the power. Because by nature you don't have the power. And by nature Jesus does. And he can supply you all the power that you need for daily Christian living. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that you who have the power by your grace and by your mercy would extend it to us that you might take and transform our lives Lord, those that do not know you, may they know you now. May your Holy Spirit give them the grace of faith and repentance that they might come and confess that Jesus indeed is Lord. And Heavenly Father, for those that have, we do ask that each and every one, as they face the road of daily Christian living, that they would see that they do not walk and cannot walk alone. Help them to walk in the power of the Spirit in the power of Christ who pours out the Spirit. May they look to Him alone for everything they need for daily Christian living to give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.